Today we conclude our the Overcoming Life series with a teaching on overcoming comparison. Theodore Roosevelt once called comparison the thief of joy. And some comparison, as we recognize, can help motivate us. Uh, I think as back as a young man, there were certain people that I uh, felt strong about, I idolized, if you will. I watched what they did and I wanted to pattern my life. And so the comparison was a very beneficial thing. And sometimes social comparison can motivate you to improve, but it also can promote judgmental, biased, and overly competitive, and sometimes even attitudes of superiority. You see, a positive comparison could be finding someone who's a role model, who provides an example, who's a motivation to improve. Jill shared with you a couple of weeks ago about uh, our pastor's wife, Lady Thomas, how she really influenced Jill and provided a tremendous role model of what it was to be a mom and to be a minister's wife in that role. And that was a very, very positive thing. And it motivated my wife. Her husband, G. Lee, was the same kind of motivation for me as a young minister. But there can also be negative comparisons. And negative comparisons lead to diminished self-esteem and can even lead to depression. We're in an age of comparison. All you have to do is look at social media. Uh, you look at what someone puts on Instagram. They get their best photos. They put them out there. Look at the life I'm living. Isn't it marvelous? Don't you wish you were as lucky as me? And we are in that age of comparison where everyone wants to be somebody else. But we're also in a season of comparison with this COVID-19. And I wanted to just touch on this briefly. You know, we can be in a situation and say, well, man, they're so lucky because their business hasn't been hit or they have this job that's kept going or this or that or whatever. We need to be careful in an age of comparison and in a season of comparison that we get caught up in this that is what Roosevelt called the thief of our joy. It's in John chapter 21, verse 17 through 23. Now to give the context of this, this is the last chapter of John. Uh, Jesus has been um, tried crucified, buried, rose again, and now he's with the disciples. And he's with Peter, John, the other disciples that are there. And we see that him talking to, to Peter, Simon Peter. And if you remember, Simon Peter had been very boastful in the last days of Jesus' life when Jesus talked about the fact that, that uh, he was going to betray him. He said, I'll never do that. And yet we see within a very short period of time, Peter denies the Lord three times, threatened even by the presence of a young girl. And so that's something that's just kind of hanging over his head. You made these promises, Peter, and you know, Peter's gotta be feeling those feelings that you, you feel when you know you didn't do what you said you were gonna do. And so a lot of times this chapter, this passage of scripture um, is referred to as uh, Jesus reinstates Peter. But I wanna look at it today from an understanding of comparison. In John chapter one, it says, then he said it a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter was so upset that he asked it for a third time. He said, do you love me? So he answered, Master, you know everything there is to know. You've got to know that I love you. And Jesus announces, feed my sheep. In that declaration, he's saying to Peter, you're going to be a prominent leader in this movement that will become known as the early church. But then he goes on to tell him something that most people don't want to hear. I'm telling you this very truth, he goes on to say. When you were young, you dressed yourself and you went wherever you wished to. But when you're old, you'll have to stretch out your hands while someone else dresses you and takes you where you don't want to go. Now we know, we know that 
Peter, later in his life, was martyred for his faith. The Romans crucified him, and we know that he made the declaration that he wasn't worthy to suffer the kind of death that his Savior Jesus had suffered. And so church history and history uh, in general tells us that he was crucified upside down. That's why you'll see the upside down uh, crosses and anything that has to do with a basilica that was related to Peter. It goes on to say that he said this to hint at the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he commanded, follow me. Now, I don't know about you, but there's not a lot of people that want to sign up to follow Jesus and you get, get this great assignment. You're going to be pretty prominent. Woohoo! And you're going to die. That's not something you want to hear. And then he says, but here's the key. Whatever you do, you've got to follow me. Peter still hasn't changed that much at this point. And so it goes on to say, turning his head, Peter noticed the disciple Jesus loved following right behind him. Now John, please understand, is not exactly this most wonderful, humble person, because he refers to himself often as, as the one that Jesus loved, as Jesus' favorite. And if we look back in earlier times with walking with Jesus, James and John are called sons of thunder. Why? Because they're combative. And Peter, James, and John had some special experiences with Jesus, but they were very, very competitive. And so Peter sees John and says to Jesus, what's going to happen to John? And Jesus says, if I want him to live until I come again, what's that to you? My charge to you was follow me. Here we see Peter suffering even then a comparison. He wanted to know something bad's going to happen to me, but please tell, please, please tell me something bad's going to happen to him too. And that's the danger of comparison. As Roosevelt said, it's the thief of our joy. Let's look at some considerations regarding comparison. First of all, we need to recognize that no one gets it all. No one gets it all. We look at people and think, man, I wish I was this, or I wish I was that, or in my case, I wish instead of this thing, I wish I had a six-pack, or I wish I had hair, or I wish I was as intelligent as that person. But we need to understand no one gets it all. We see what another person has that we don't have. But what we don't see is areas in which we have greater strength and greater attributes and greater giftings than that other person. No one gets it all. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says, the human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one body, so it is with the body of Christ. The fact is, as as believers in Jesus, it takes all of us to be the body of Christ. And no one gets it all. We are often guilty of seeking influence over impact. Let me explain what I mean by that. Influence is something that you could have to a large group. Uh, the President of the United States has influence over, over 300 million people. Uh, the Governor of California has influence over 40 million people. The President of our denomination, Glenn Burris, and our President-elect, Randy Remington, have influence over a denomination of several thousand churches. Uh, I, as a pastor, have a level of influence over a couple of congregations. But a Sunday school teacher has more than influence, they have impact. You see, we need to understand these simple truths. The greater your influence, the less your impact. And while sometimes the mom who's at home with the two kids says, man, I don't have much influence, the fact is the mom that's at home with two kids has tremendous impact in the lives of, of two children. And as 
people in comparing ourselves, we often think, well, those that have influence must be more prominent. They must be more gifted. They must be better than us. And the fact is, is that's not the case. God gives some of us roles of ministry of service that we have influence, but we have very little impact. We don't do things that really change people's lives in a profound way as those of us that have more impact and less influence. Third, Jesus gives the most profound gifts to people that we least expect. In 1 Corinthians, it says, the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen, while the more honorable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity or not as important in our understanding. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. Now, in the church, we often think that the greatest gifts in the church are on the platform. I can share with you, absolutely, they are not. The greatest gifts in the church of Jesus Christ will be found in the audience. In fact, we need to recognize this simple truth that God overlooks no one in His giftings. We look at certain things and because we rank gifts, giftings in a certain way and we think, oh, prominence or prestige because you're public, that makes that a more profound gift. But you will be absolutely amazed at the wisdom, the insight, the spiritual depth that you'll find in people. And you'll say, I would have never expected it, but God gifts them in that way because God overlooks no one. He didn't overlook you. Another comparison consideration we have is we all deal with insecurity. Everyone is insecure, even the ones that don't appear to be. We all deal with that insecurity. And the last thing is everyone has pain. Everyone has pain. For some, the pain is visible. For some, the pain is seen. For some, the pain is easily recognized. And for others, because of the fact that perhaps they shield it well, perhaps they've learned to, to put up a facade, we don't see it. But we need to recognize that everyone has pain. Second today, I want to talk about the curse of comparison. Comparison does some ugly, ugly things for us. And first of all, it produces two things, either arrogance or insecurity. If it produces arrogance, that's a sense of superiority and with it comes pride. And Proverbs 16, 18 says, your boast becomes a prophecy of future failure. The higher you lift yourself up in pride, the harder you'll fall in disgrace. On the other side of this same coin is insecurity, and with insecurity comes inferiority. There was a study one time about uh, fashion models, and of that group that was studied, 90% of them suffered severe low self-esteem. And you say, why would they say they have the body, they have the adulation, they have uh, the media around them, all of those kinds of things, they have money, and yet 90% of them suffered low self-esteem. Why? Because they were endlessly being compared to other people. And when you're comparing yourself to other people, you will always see where the other is greater, and you will always look at yourself from your point of your flaws. Second, it keeps me focused on myself and others. Jesus had to say to Peter, you follow me. And what he was really saying is, quit looking at John. It has nothing to do with you. Quit looking at John, look at me. And when we get caught in this curse of comparison, we're focusing on what others have, the giftings, the talents, the finances, the home, the family, all of those kinds of things. And God would say to us through His Son Jesus, here's what you need to do. Get your eyes off of others 
and get your eyes on me and follow me. I've gifted you, I've given you the talents you need, and you're not incomplete in me. The third thing the curse of comparison does is it hinders our trust in God. It hinders our trust in God. You see, what Peter was really wondering at that time was, does Jesus love John more than me? Because he told me, yeah, you're gonna have a place of prominence, that's good. You're gonna die and not wanna die the way you're going to die, that's bad. And then when you try to at least get some comfort in finding out something bad is gonna to happen to one of your rivals, you find out, leave it alone, Peter, that's not for you, you follow me. You see, comparison plants seeds of mistrust and offense against God. The fourth thing the curse of comparison does, it makes us resentful and rejecting of others. Resentful and rejecting of others. I have suffered this, and it has been a tremendous challenge in my life. When I've seen other people achieve something that I thought that I should achieve, or they had something that I thought I should have, or they had hair and I don't, it can make you resentful and you reject others. The fifth thing that the curse of comparison can do is try, you, you, you try to become something that you're not. And the reason you do that is you're trying to measure up and feel some sense of self-worth. And when we do that, we're ignoring the message of Psalms 139 verse 16, which let me read that to you. You shaped me first inside, then out. You formed me in my mother's womb. I thank you, high God, you're breathtaking. Body and soul, I am marvelously made. I worship in adoration. What a creation. You know me inside and out. You know every bone in my body. You know exactly how I was made bit by bit, how I was sculpted from nothing into something. Like an open book, you watched me grow from conception to birth. All the stages of my life were spread out before you, the days of my life, all prepared before I even had lived one day. The curse of comparison makes us try to become something that we are not. Here's a great confession. As a young minister, I was enamored with Pastor Jack Hayford, and he's a great guy to have as a role model. But I'll tell you, I'm no Jack Hayford. I tried to teach like Jack, I used big words like Jack, and I never forget the time that dear Sister Myers came up to me and said, I know you preached a great sermon today, but I don't understand what you were saying. And at that point in time, I realized I need to quit being Jack and I need to be Mark. Comparison opens the door to the adversary. It opens the door in our life to the adversary, the devil. In James chapter three, it says, but if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying for jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, worldly, unspiritual, and he goes on to say, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. You see, envy is often the basis of comparison. We see in Psalms 106 that Israel rebelled against Moses. Why? Out of envy. In Matthew 27, we see that the Jews surrendered Jesus to the Romans. Why? Because of envy. You see, envy is a boundary violation. We refuse to acknowledge God's right to parent and bless others as he pleases. Before I continue on, I want us to go to a time of worship and revisit the song that we shared last week, The Artist. The Artist talks about the fact that God made us. The words say, you fill every canvas with wonder. You cover the white space with color. I can't always see what you've started, but I put my faith 
in the artist. You craft something perfect despite my mistakes. My failures are met by the full force of grace. Your blood hit the canvas with one final stroke, the cost of redemption, your life for my own. So let's look at the causes of comparison. First of all, it's the lack of acceptance in who God made me to be. I remember as a younger person, uh, I was very irritated with God because I had certain attributes that I thought were more feminine. I was sensitive. I knew when I said something and hurt somebody. And I watched other people that seemed to be able to just tell it like it was, and they didn't care what happened with the consequences. And I used to be really upset with God about how the way he had made me to be. Um, I would have loved to have been a lot taller. I'd love to be a lot leaner today. But God made me to be a certain way. And so one of the causes of comparison is when I, I don't accept how God made me. I don't recognize, I don't agree with what his word says about how he made me. The second cause of comparison is lack of security and identity in God. Uh, Jill's testimony is a wonderful, wonderful testimony of what happens to a person when they become secure in their identity in God. She changed completely, and now she's in a position of great responsibility and great authority and is able to deal uh, fairly yet directly with many, many people. That lack of security and identity in God is a huge cause of comparison. In Jeremiah 17, Verses 5 through 8, it says, Cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans who rely on human strength and turn their hearts away from the Lord. They are like stunted shrubs in the desert with no hope for the future. They will live in a barren wilderness in uninhabited salty land. But blessed are those, but blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and their confidence. They are like trees planted along a riverbank with roots that reach deep into the water such trees are not bothered by heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. Lack of security is a cause of comparison. The third is the wrong concept of God. I've shared several weeks in a row about the fact that as parents, we are image bearers of God to our children. And many of us had the wrong image portrayed to us. Or perhaps it was in church. The wrong image of God was portrayed. If you grew up in a very legalistic uh, moralistic group that had a series of demands, you could think that God was always mad, that he was always out to get you. And the wrong concept of God will be a cause of comparison. Because here's why. You will interpret God's greater blessings on others as a sign of his preference for those other people. I was talking with uh, Jim Toll one time in the pastor of Church on the Way at the time, both the English and the Spanish church, very large prominent church in our denomination. And he said to me, Mark, we're not, we don't have different callings. We don't have a greater calling. It says we just have different assignments. And that helped me so much to understand it has nothing to do with where we are, what we're doing, because we're fulfilling God's assignment in our life. It doesn't mean because someone's assignment is we perceive greater or because it's bigger or more prominent or has greater influence, that somehow that makes us less than those others. Another uh, cause of comparison is greed. And greed is nothing more than excessive desire. You see, there's two spirits that can come into play with greed. One is an orphan spirit that has to have too much to be enough. An orphan spirit is an abandonment spirit. I struggle with that because my parents left me as a baby. And you have that feeling that I don't measure up. And so this isn't enough. I need this because that will validate who I am. The other spirit that comes into greed is an entitlement spirit. 
that believes I have the right to have what I want and what others have as well, which leads to covetousness. Another cause of comparison is lack of love for others. We see this in Peter. If Peter really loved John at that point in time, why would he want John to suffer too? He would really want him to avoid suffering. You see, if we really love someone, we want something good for them, not something bad. The next is jealousy and envy. Jealousy is a feeling resentment against someone because of that person's success or their perceived advantages. Envy is feeling discontent or covetousness with regard to their advantages, their success, or most often their possessions. So jealousy is usually about people and envy is usually about things. John, in 1 John, wrote about it. He said, don't love this world nor the things it offers for you, for when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievement and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. So as we close today, how do we overcome comparison? How do we overcome comparison? First of all, we need to accept who God made me to be, and we need to thank Him for it. You see, catch this, catch this key. Our relationship with God will never be right, and we will never be free until we thank Him for who we are, what we are, and where we are. Our relationship with God is never right, and we will never experience true freedom until we thank Him for who we are, what we are, and where we are. In 1 Thessalonians, it says it this way, In the midst of everything, be always giving thanks. For this is God's perfect plan for you in Christ Jesus. Please understand, the giving thanks is God's perfect plan, not the stuff that you're in. Because some of the stuff you're in wasn't God's will. You put yourself there. But he says, praise me wherever you are. That's my perfect plan for you. Be thankful for who I've made you. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are God's masterpiece. He created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do good things he planned for us long ago. We are his masterpiece. One of my heroes in the faith is Robbie Booth. And Robbie was our uh, former district supervisor and still a very close friend. Robbie has a great, great statement. He said, you know, you're my favorite. Now, he says that to everybody when he's talking to his children. Whichever child is, you know, you're my favorite. When he's talking to me, he said, you know, you're my favorite pastor. Well, when he talks to another pastor, he says the same thing. Well, here's the good news. He's really relaying something in how God feels about us. We are all his favorites. Every one of us is his favorite. So we need to accept God, whom, how God made us, who he made me to be, and we need to thank him for it. Second, we need to trust God. We need to trust God with our needs and with our desires. You know, not every desire that we have is a negative desire. Many of those desires God has put in our heart for us to achieve, to fulfill giftings and callings He's put on our life. But we need to trust Him for those needs and for those desires to be fulfilled. If they're gifts of God, they will make a place for themselves. They will be found and be used. We need to trust God to make me into the person I want to become. I am a lifelong and through eternity project to become more like Jesus. Every once in a while I think, well, man, I've really achieved, I've really arrived, and then something happens to remind me, I really haven't arrived at all. And I need to trust God with others. I need to trust God with others and stop interfering with His work in those other people's lives. God is working in others. He's working in a different time frame, in a different dimension, with different challenges and with different issues. 
it is not my place to compare where I am with others. It's God's place to take care of others. I need to butt out, if you will, and allow him to work in their lives. We also, to overcome comparison, we need to learn to bless others in their advantages. This is a great parallel to how you learn to, uh, to forgive. Uh, when you see someone who has an advantage or what you perceive as an advantage, and sometimes there can be jealousy or envy, or you say, how come God, why them? And, and you say, why, why not me? And you know, when we can, can will our spirit to bless, which means to be happy, we bless others in their advantages and say, thank God that you've gifted them. Thank God that you've given them talents. Thank God you'll discover that that change in attitude will begin a change in you and the spirit of comparison will be gone from your life and you'll experience true freedom and a closer relationship with God. And then you can become everything that he's ordained for you to be. And last, you need to be a giver and an encourager. Be a giver and encourager. Those are very, very important attributes of what we need to do to overcome comparison. You know, see, comparison says take. I envy, so I want. Comparison says, I'm jealous, so I want, I want to possess. And you know what? When you become a giver, it helps to overcome that spirit of envy and jealousy and comparison. And the other thing that we can do on this point is to be an encourager. To be an encourager. You know, one of the key points of biblical prophecy is to encourage. And one of the key things for every believer is to encourage one another in love. We're challenged to do that. When we learn to encourage others, even those that we sometimes are a bit envious and jealous about, we'll find that that spirit of comparison will be broken in our lives and will become everything that God wants us to be. This is fantastic. We can overcome the spirit of comparison if we just do these things. God, I know how you made me. I accept that. I thank you that you made me this way. I don't understand everything, but you do. You put those gifts and talents in me for a reason and for a purpose, and I thank you for it. And I'm going to trust you with my needs, with my desires, with my hopes, with my dreams. I'm putting them in your hands. If they're from you, they'll be fulfilled. And I'm going to ask you, God, to make me into the person that you want me to become. And I'm going to butt out of other people's lives and stop interfering with your work in their lives. I want to bless others. I want to bless them in their advantages and be grateful that they have them and be thankful that God counted them worthy to carry those giftings and those skills. And last, I want to be a giver because being a giver overcomes selfishness. And I want to be an encourager because when I do that, not only do I help others, but it helps defeat this comparison spirit in my life. This is a fantastic truth. I trust that you'll get it into your spirit today. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for your people. I pray your blessing and grace upon them. I pray that you will help them to overcome the spirit of comparison, that they might step into the complete freedom that each of us are designed to enjoy in the Spirit of God as we recognize that you're our daddy and that you care for us, that we're your favorite, and that the gifts, the talents, the abilities, the skills that you placed in our lives, the dreams that you put in our heart are from you, and you will fulfill them in our lives if we just trust you to do that. Let us not be like Peter and ask, what about them? But let us just follow you as Peter was challenged to do. We'll give you thanks and praise for it. Amen and amen. Thank you for watching with us today. We appreciate you joining us during this last 12 weeks, the Overcoming Life series. Trust has been a blessing to you. 
Pray that God will use these teachings to help you to live the overcoming victorious life. That's what his plan is, and that's what his design is for all of us. If you have any prayer needs, need to get in contact with us, feel free to call the church number. It'll get forwarded to us. Also, you can email us at info at rivers.org. We'll be delighted to hear from you. If you have a prayer request, we'd be delighted to pray with you about those things. I want to encourage you to continue to be faithful in giving. Give as God has blessed and prospered you. The Bible says that when we are faithful in our giving, He rebukes the devourer for our sake. And uh, what's left is blessed, and it goes so much farther. Uh, we thank you so much uh, as you continue as a church family to be, be faithful in this way. We appreciate it. I'm grateful that our president on Friday made a declaration regarding the significance and importance of churches and houses of worship, declaring that they were essential uh, functions that had an essential function in our culture and in our society and our country. I agree with that so much. Uh, the leaders of our denomination uh, met and in consultation throughout late Friday uh, sent us a request that we not meet this week, which is why you're watching me online. Um, they want us to wait until there are clear plans and policies and procedures in place, guidelines that we can follow. So we uh, choose to do that, and uh, as soon as those things are in place, we will uh, resume our meetings together. Uh, there's been an interesting uh, conversation and dialogue that has grown each and every week, and I have people ask me, Pastor, what do you think, uh, regarding uh, a group of churches that said, we're going to meet regardless of what the government says. And they quote Acts chapter 5, uh, where Peter and John, when they were commanded not to speak the name of Jesus, said, it's better for us to obey God rather than man. And that is a true scriptural principle. Another true scriptural principle is that we're to obey those and to submit ourselves to those in authority over us. Well, the question is, how do you balance those two things? Well, for me, it comes down to this. If the government, any government, is asking me to do something that violates my faith, that restricts my worship in the sense that I'm no longer allowed to perhaps meet in a home, own a Bible, all of those kinds of things, or even declare the name of Jesus, then I'm with Peter and John in Acts 5. It's better obey God rather than men. In this particular season, I personally, this is a markism, I personally don't feel that the uh, direction that we receive violates our faith. Nothing's to stop us from meeting at home. There's nothing that stops us from, from having these online uh, broadcasts. There's nothing that stops us from reading our Bible, from having Zoom meetings and home groups and things like that. It's an inconvenience, but it is, to me, it's not been a violation of our faith. Um, ask me in a month if this continues. I might have a different opinion. But anyway, that's, that's where we are. So check the church website. Check your email box. Uh, we'll have some written guidelines when we're ready to reopen. Uh, we look forward to that day, anticipate that day with, with great joy, a time of celebration that we get together again and, and worship the Lord and celebrate the friendships and relationships we have as a church family. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and may he give you peace. Amen and amen. Looking forward to seeing you soon. God bless.